We're engaged in a verse-by-verse study through the New Testament book of Revelation, and at present we find ourselves nearing the end of chapter 16. Revelation describes a series of visions given to the apostle John by Jesus, and John records what he sees and hears and presents, us, presents it for us here in the form of a letter to the churches. Like the rest of Scripture, the book of Revelation tells the consistent story of God's own mission to exercise his sacrificial love to redeem lost sinners and save all who will believe by grace through faith in Jesus. Now here, John describes the completion of God's redemptive mission, the final defeat of evil itself, and the vindication of the faithful. In chapter 15, John saw seven angels having the last seven plagues, and we're told that in them the wrath of God is complete. All the redeemed believers are pictured in heaven, standing on the sea of glass that proceeds from the throne of God, and they are playing harps and singing the song of Moses and the Lamb, a musical score that elaborates the gracious deliverance of God's people and the righteous judgment of those who have oppressed them. In chapter 16, the seven angels begin to unleash the wrath of God upon those who remain on the earth. His goodness and kindness have been made manifest in creation, especially in sending his only son Jesus to be a sacrifice for our sins. But as part of his plan to redeem us and the rest of creation, God's judgment on the forces of sin and death is a necessary and inevitable consequence. Now, as we've observed previously, much of this story here in Revelation is revealed in symbolic images. And the timeline of the events described is not particularly chronological or consistent. That said, it feels at this point in our study as though there's a definite trend toward increased urgency As violent and deadly tribulation initially begins with only a fraction of the earth, but now celestial bowls filled with the wrath of God are poured out on all the earth. Thus, as God turns up the heat on those who defy him, he does so in a distinctly incremental fashion that seems intended to draw lost people to repentance and salvation. The first bowl produced a foul and loathsome sower on all those who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. As we've observed before, God does not simply kill them. Instead, he allows them to be tormented in a way that may press them to repent even now. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned to blood and every last sea creature died. Yet while the sea is devastated beyond imagination... Guilty, rebellious people are once more given cause to repent. John then watched as the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then the fourth bowl was poured out on the sun, and men were scorched with great heat. So it is once again that the pressure incrementally builds for those who remain. Yet they blaspheme the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Before the angels are even finished with their bowls, John witnesses an interlude where God's character is affirmed as fully righteous because he has judged these things. But sinful, selfish men curse God anyway and refuse to turn 
from their evil ways. And in their torment, they get what they deserve. Because by taking the mark of the beast and worshiping his image, they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets. Now we see that God's justice is as fair as it is ironic, since those who have shed the blood of the saints and prophets will now be given blood to drink. And those who have burned martyrs at the stake will themselves be scorched. We see that God's judgments are both true and righteous. He is neither arbitrary nor capricious, but rather abundant in mercy. Indeed, we might expect the wicked to be slain without pity the same way they killed the saints. But there is a curious restraint in the justice of God, for even now, the incremental, methodical nature of these plagues suggests that something more than wrath is intended. Even if the effort is ultimately futile, it seems that these bowls of misery poured out one after the other after the other are still designed to urge lost souls to come to saving faith. As we drew to a close last time, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. Like the darkness that engulfed Egypt before the exodus, this is a far cry from outright destruction of the kingdom. So once again, we see evidence of God's mercy. Once again, it seems as though God is applying pressure on these people to reconsider their loyalties. There's no reason to think there's any question in the minds of these people about who's responsible for these plagues. They seem to have rightly identified God as the source of these things, and yet they fail to see the connection between their sin and God's response. They willingly took the mark of the beast and worship his image. Now they watch as God sends an angel with a bowl of wrath and the entire kingdom of the beast they serve is plunged into abject darkness. Now you would think the conclusion would be obvious. Even the beast's own power and his throne and great authority are no match for the sovereign will of the Almighty God. As with the plague of darkness brought down on ancient Egypt, the darkness here is intense. Described in Exodus 10 verse 21 as a darkness which may even be felt. The way Moses explained it back then, they did not see one another nor did anyone even rise from his place. And back then it only lasted three days. So you can just imagine the sense of fear and isolation that would prevail among the people. All but the most basic survival activities would probably come to a halt, and we would expect that reasonable men might begin to recognize the importance of light and truth in a world darkened by sin. What is a partial, metaphorical, spiritual darkness now will become a complete, actual, physical darkness in the end, a darkness so deep it produces torment that causes people to gnaw their tongues because of the pain. Of course, as we pointed out last time, darkness doesn't by itself usually cause pain, and yet this is what we're told. So, 
Perhaps this bowl contains an allusion to the final judgment of unrepentant souls who will find themselves in an outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Experts point out, after all, that both expressions, gnashing of teeth and gnawing of their tongues, are virtual synonyms for the agony of intense suffering. So it's possible that this darkness that causes pain hints at and mercifully warns of the eternal punishment to come. Nevertheless, even though they have suffered for their embrace of evil and have witnessed the power of God plunge the kingdom of their beast into continual darkness, it seems that the darkness in their hearts is every bit as unrelenting. Instead of turning toward God, they reject God all the more, and this is further proof of their utter depravity. You may recall that we witnessed back in chapter 11, verse 13, some of the nations give glory to the God of heaven. And at the time, we discussed the notion that repenting and giving glory to the God of heaven should probably be understood as a description or expression of saving faith. In that sense, it's very much like the confession of King Nebuchadnezzar that we studied back in the book of Daniel. When broken and repentant, he lifted his eyes toward heaven. And he blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And when we see a great but proud king like Nebuchadnezzar repent and honor the one true God, we sense that there is hope even for these beast followers. But here the opposite occurs as they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores instead of repenting of their deeds. You notice, they seem to be mourning over their pains and sores, but not over their sins. And this is a critical issue that goes all the way back to the beginning of the book. In chapter 1, verse 7, John quotes Zechariah 12, 10, where speaking of the Messiah, the prophet says, all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. And as we pointed out when we covered that, verse, it has a double meaning. Some will mourn over their sin and the pain that it has caused others, even recognizing their own role in causing the suffering of our Savior for our redemption. But others will simply mourn in judgment, suffering because of their pride. As the seals were open on the scroll, God began to sound the warning. Then the trumpets brought even more extreme events, designed perhaps to get the attention of the most stubborn people. Now, as these events overlap and persist, the trumpets give way to these bowls, and the tension continues to rise as God finally forces the issue we all face. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Which brings us to our material for today at Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and the water was dried up. Its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. 
The river Euphrates was mentioned once before in the book of Revelation, back in chapter 9. There, four angels who had been bound at the great river Euphrates were released, and a huge army of demonic horsemen slaughtered a third of mankind. Well, experts tell us that the Euphrates River, running for approximately 1,728 miles from northwest to southeast, has always been seen as one of the lines of demarcation between east and west, as well as the fuel for ancient rivalries between Occident and Orient. In modern times, the Euphrates has seen a dramatic drop in total discharge since the construction of the first dams began in the 1970s. The increased withdrawal of water for irrigation has impacted the downstream flow to the point where peak volume has dropped by as much as two-thirds just since 1990. However, when the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, its water was dried up. Not because of irrigation or by some natural phenomenon, but miraculously, in order to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Of course, we know that this is not an entirely unprecedented event. Historically, God has intervened to alter the course or behavior of waters on a number of occasions. God parted the Red Sea, allowing Moses to lead the people away from the armies of Egypt that pursued them. Then, after the Exodus, the flow of the Jordan River was stopped, allowing Joshua to lead God's people into the Promised Land. In both cases, the miracle of holding back the water was quite real. And the people are specifically said to have made their crossings on dry land. Here, John explains that the water of the great river Euphrates was dried up. However, this time it wasn't done to allow God's people to cross over. This time it was done so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. But why? Who are these kings from the east? And why would God want to prepare the way for them to cross over? Scholars recognize one might suppose that the coming of the kings from the east is related to antagonism that they have with the beast and his government in the west. But many believe it more likely suggests a unifying of all these kingdoms, joining with the unholy trinity against the work of God. Of course, experts remind us in John's time, the dominant power belonged to the Romans. And the Romans were uneasy about the prospect of attacks from the Parthians from east of the Euphrates. Historically, the Parthians were great horsemen, and they had pushed back an invading Roman army more than once by the time John received these visions. Yet now, John reveals God's intention to eliminate the primary natural barrier between Rome and its eastern enemies. Even so, scholars hasten to point out that the imagery isn't really confined to just one period of time. Instead, it is likely that God intends to convey another warning about the vulnerability of the powers such as Rome that oppress the people of God. Verse 13. 
And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Well, you know, that's a little bit of a surprise to most of us. These days, we think of frogs as cute little creatures. We even eat frogs. Well, the legs, at least. Fried. We use the letters for the word frog to encourage our kids that they should fully rely on God. And just the other day, a teacher I know confided to me that middle school kids are like frogs because they're constantly abuzz, croaking about something until an adult comes by and then all at once, like frogs, they are suddenly silent. However, as cute as frogs may be to us, it hasn't always been that way. Before the exodus, Moses threatened Pharaoh with a plague of frogs if he refused to let God's people go. Now, to us, that may seem like more of an endearing inconvenience than a plague. But Moses describes frogs coming into Pharaoh's own house into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. This plague of frogs was so horrible that Pharaoh soon pleaded with Moses to take them away and promised to let the people go if he did. Moses agreed, And the very next day, the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. In fact, there were so many dead frogs, they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief from this plague, he hardened his heart and did not allow the people to go. Well, notice how some things never change. Historically, the image of frogs was that of an unclean animal. Frogs are among those things proclaimed unclean according to Jewish dietary laws. So it would be shocking to a first century reader to imagine something coming out of your mouth that you shouldn't put in your mouth in the first place. Of course, in the text we have here, John isn't talking about actual frogs. Instead, he employs the language of simile, telling us he saw three unclean spirits like frogs. So as one commentator put it, while these unclean spirits may have the despicable nature of frogs, they are in fact evil spirits. All this got me thinking about Matthew chapter 15, where Jesus was challenged by the scribes and Pharisees because His disciples weren't following the traditions of the elders. In response, Jesus explained how the Pharisees and scribes had actually rendered the commandments of God ineffective by their own man-made traditions. He said to them, in essence, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. When Peter asked, Jesus explained, saying, Those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, 
false witness, and blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Just so, you will know a tree by its fruit, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So if you're reflecting the Holy Spirit inside of you, these are the things that will come out of you. On the contrary, it stands to reason that the fruit of evil spirits will be things like apathy, despair, chaos, petulance, cruelty, wickedness, harshness, fear, and self-indulgence. Either way, the spirit that we have inside of us will be reflected in what comes out of our mouth or out of our life. Here, unclean spirits are seen coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Again, these three evil beings form a cynical parody or imitation of the divine trinity. This false trinity appears to respond to the divine judgments poured out upon their followers. And we notice that here, the three are combined, working together for the first time. So rather than surrendering in light of their coming defeat, the adversaries of God intensify their opposition. Like Pharaoh, they harden their hearts even in the face of God's mercy. And we should pause, I think, to recognize here the obvious contrast with Christ, from whose mouth proceeds a sharp two-edged sword. This, in turn, provokes an image of the Word of God, which itself is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. All people in every age have rebelled against God with their hearts and their hands, yet for many, His kindness and mercy have led us to repentance. That said, for those who steadfastly refuse to repent... There will be no defense, no excuse, and no doubt, because no matter the nature of the deception, Jesus is not confused. He is even able to discern the thoughts and intents of your heart. Verse 14, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. The unclean spirits like frogs are now described as spirits of demons, and they move to assemble the enemies of God and his people for battle. But as spirits of demons, they are seen here performing signs, Now, the clear implication is that they have the power to perform signs and wonders of a miraculous nature. Remember, Pharaoh's magicians 
were able to replicate some of the miraculous signs performed by God through Moses and Aaron. Of interest is the fact that they even used their enchantments to bring up frogs upon the land of Egypt. See, we can do it too. But for some reason, they were unable to use those same magical powers to make the frogs go away. So once again, there's an important lesson here for all of us. Beware. God is not the only one who can perform signs and wonders. Recall back in chapter 13, the beast of the earth performed great signs so that he even made fire come down from heaven onto the earth in the sight of men. And he did those things in order to deceive those who dwell on the earth by those signs. After all, deception is the very nature of the enemy. The name devil is derived from a word meaning slander, so it should come as no surprise that he uses his powers to perform great signs for the purpose of deceiving mankind and getting us to follow him to our own destruction. Of course, Jesus performed many miracles during his ministry, and there were certainly many signs and wonders associated with the developments of the early church particularly in the book of Acts. However, those signs and wonders were always bestowed as a blessing on the people who received them, and they served as a sign that pointed to Jesus as the true Messiah. On the other hand, Jesus refused to perform miracles on demand and even rebuked the Jews for seeking a miraculous sign. So we must be careful of such things. Jesus himself warns about this very issue, particularly in the context of the great tribulation and his own second coming. In Matthew 24, verse 24, Jesus says, If anyone says to you, look, there's the Christ, or or, there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. He concludes by saying, See, I have told you beforehand. So don't be persuaded that someone's representing God or doing good just because they are able to perform signs and wonders that may defy explanation. We as believers must be more discerning than that. Here we're told that the signs performed by these spirits of these demons go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world, and the purpose is to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Well, first of all, notice that the reference to the kings of the east has now been broadened to include the kings of the earth and, rather redundantly, the kings of the whole world. This also appears to confirm that the great river Euphrates is dried up to allow this evil assembly to join with the beast rather than fighting against him. And it's noteworthy that the battle itself is further described as the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Now, if you're like me, you may wonder how a battle of such magnitude could ever be called a great day. 
since the clash will surely lead to the deaths of many and cause untold misery to creation itself. But if you stop to think about it, these things are already happening all the time. Maybe it's not on a scale that's described here, but mankind seems to be in a state of constant conflict in one place or another. What Jesus is revealing here to John, and by extension to all of us, is his oft-repeated promise that he will not permit evil to prevail on the earth forever. While we may feel as though we're living in a perpetual state of decay and degradation, the fall of mankind and the groans of creation that followed will not continue indefinitely. One day, and we don't know when that day will come, Jesus will return for his people, and he will make all things new. He will usher in that great day of God Almighty, where we will finally be able to live and love forever as God intended in a world without sin and death. Lord Jesus, please come soon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this book of Revelation. It says something about your character that you would go to such lengths to warn mankind concerning your plans. You don't desire that any should die in ignorance. And you do far more than we could ask for or expect to make certain your actions are just and righteous. Help us to be better ambassadors to this lost and dying world, Lord, that through us you may get Draw many to saving faith. So it is we pray in the name of Jesus, whose sacrifice makes our salvation possible. Amen.